like the way that what Canada calls its its model. We call ourselves a melting pot. Mm -hmm. They call themselves a mosaic. What I don't want my radio station to be is a melting pot. It's not homogenization. It's a mosaic. The unique diversity of community radio shines through in two new low-power FM stations in the Washington, D.C. area. Jennifer Waits brings us those tours. And Ernesto Aguilar joins again to talk about some new frontiers in community radio. Creating this new synthesis, this idea of doing a podcast which is going out to a brand new audience, people who don't normally otherwise listen to a station, but want that on-demand intimate experience that podcasting creates, but also crave the legitimacy, frankly, of an institution like a radio station. This is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismanel, and I am your host and producer. My usual co-host and co-producer, Eric Klein, is on vacation. He'll be back soon. And later on in the show, I'll be talking with Jennifer Waits, our college radio correspondent and frequent co-host. She recently toured some community radio stations in the Washington, D.C. area, both low-power FM stations that have a unique relationship with each other and also unique relationship with their communities. It sparks a conversation about diversity in community radio, an aspect of the medium that often goes overlooked or just taken for granted, and so we try to highlight it today. That comes up later in the show. Before that, I'll be talking with Ernesto Aguilar. He is the outgoing program director at Pacifica Station KPFT in Houston, Texas, and he will soon be taking on the role as the and he'll be and he'll soon be taking on the role of membership program director at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. He's here to update us about the recent National NFCB conference that happened in June and about the Low Power FM summit that was co-sided with that conference. But before that, I wanted to make a mention of a very important holiday that is coming up very, very soon on August 20th. It is National Radio Day. And last year, Radio Survivor helped to celebrate it along with dozens of stations around the country. And we're going to celebrate it again this year. It's a great celebration of radio and its unique role in American life. And that is August 20th. Um, it's great if stations want to participate, maybe do some special programming. Uh, you can also do things like throw an event or just uh, give station tours, invite people in, do giveaways on air. Um, as a listener, of course, just listen to the radio. You can participate that way. You can participate by uh, engaging with your local station, maybe, maybe making a donation or just simple ways. Look for things like participating in social media. Post your radio selfie on National Radio Day and tag your station if you work at a station or tag your favorite station, maybe the station you're listening to. What do you do when you're listening to your favorite station? And let's help get the word out. Let's get more people celebrating National Radio Day on August 20th. We'll be using the hashtag on Instagram, Twitter, and elsewhere. Just 
hashtag National Radio Day. And uh, let's get let's get it trending now. Let's get it trending between now and August twentieth. Uh, make your post. Talk about why radio is important to you. Why it's important to your life. Why it's important to your community. And tag it. National Radio Day. And you can learn a lot more about National Radio Day at nationalradioday.com, where there's also a directory of different events that will be happening uh, around the country, maybe in your backyard to celebrate radio. And if you want to throw an event, whether you're at a station or you just want to throw an event because you love radio, uh, you can register your event there so that our people can find out about it. Go to nationalradioday.com. So next up is my conversation with Ernesto Aguilar, who will be joining the staff of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. I talked with him because I wanted to find out uh, what went down at this year's National Federation of Community Broadcasters uh, National Conference, which happened in Denver, Colorado in June a little bit, and learn more about what the NFCB has in store for low-power FM stations with so many going on the air right now. Uh, these are stations that can use the support, and the NFCB is trying to help out in that regard. But, you know, in case you haven't heard of the NFCB or you've heard these uh, initials thrown around, but you never quite understood what it is, I asked Ernesto to tell us what exactly is the NFCB. NFCB is a 40-plus-year-old organization which represents the interests of community radio. A diverse range of stations, everything from Native American and HBCU stations to low-power FM rural stations as well, and large urban stations like the one I work at in Houston. Very good. So this is, you know, uh, perhaps you you won't like the parallel so much, but it's sort of like a national association of broadcasters for for community radio in that way, and really looking after after not just uh, sort of your your interests when it comes to to sorts of to to legal issues or regulatory issues, but you also help out with like group buys on things like insurance and and engineering services and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah, no offense taken to the NAB comparison. They're doing what they do and they do it just fine. And we similarly help stations develop capacity and infrastructure. We also articulate issues of policy and help stations become more informed and engage their communities in a much richer way. And one of the ways that NFCB does this is by holding events, by holding conferences. And last year, NFCB did something a little bit different by going and doing them regionally, going to different areas like the Midwest, the West Coast, and on to kind of help meet some stations where they are, I think, because not all, not everyone has the money to send somebody, you know, across the country or further away for a conference. But this year, you went ahead and had another national conference in Denver this past June. And so I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit of what are some of the takeaways? What 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 is uh, What did you learn or what do you think folks who went to the conference learned about community radio today? Yeah, well, I appreciate you setting the table talking about our regional summits because I think for a lot of different community stations around the country – being able to send a few different folks from those stations, whether volunteers or staff or volunteer staff 
to a particular region that was a lot closer to them, they got a chance to get a sense of what other nations in a particular region were dealing with. Got to network and see what is going on in that region, but also get a sense of training and get a chance to learn some things and have a shared experience. The National Conference is one of these wonderful things in which community stations from across the country get to get together and meet up to learn about what stations nationally are dealing with, but also get a chance to learn best practices around matters like digital, music curation, legal issues, operations, automation systems, news and news gathering, and how to lift stations up beyond what they're already doing. We ran into such a a range of different stations, from the low-power FM stations that are new on the air to long-time stations that have been doing some fantastic work in their communities and how they engage those communities more broadly. For me, some of the biggest takeaways are were that there is such a magical opportunity for radio right now. And what I took away from that conference was a sense of excitement. A lot of stations who hear what so many of us hear, which is that radio is dying, it's going away. But for a lot of communities, things like LPFM represent this very invigorating opportunity to re-engage communities that don't otherwise get a chance to be at the table. They don't get a chance to be represented in media, either in their communities or nationally. So this is an opportunity to learn how to do radio from people who've been doing it for many, many years. Another takeaway from that conference is that digital is really the way that helps flatten that playing field for everyone. They get a chance to do things like podcasts, do things like build apps and stream, and learn from things like Audience Engine that Ken Friedman from WFMU and others have partnered together to help make tools a lot more accessible. And finally, I think that the accessibility of tools is something that is going to make this medium much more thrilling in the months and the years to come because there's so many stations that just don't have the millions of dollars that a lot of other stations, commercial or otherwise, may have, but they've got people who are passionate. There are tools out there that are affordable and accessible, and as a result, they're able to deepen their relationships with their communities and also make their communities more accessible for people via the web all over and make that relationship and their voices all the more elevated. So were folks really learning about some of these new digital tools? I'm thinking of, of social media tools, perhaps something like a Snapchat or Facebook Live, which has really taken off this year, or Periscope or, or uh, YouTube Live or, or just simply YouTube. Was there much discussion or were there even like workshops around these, these types of technologies, which of course aren't explicitly radio, but these days are, are sort of embedded in our media environment? Part of my job at the conference was to curate a conference track called Makers, in which people would get a chance to learn from people who were already doing projects, how to do things like stream video, or how to do Periscope, how to do Facebook Live, how to participate in those realms in a unique way, uh, how to stream audio, for mobile, how to do these things that would make their stations 
a little bit more accessible to their existing audiences because the reality is, and I know people tend to come up with caricatures in their heads, Snapchat isn't just about the 13-year-old. It's really about the 30-year-old, the 50-year-old, the 60-year-old, the individual who's oftentimes a regular listener to community radio, but maybe got an iPad for Christmas, may have decided to download this stuff uh, on a whim, and they've now gotten into it because so much media is now there. They're already engaging in those conversations. So showing stations how to make themselves a little bit friendlier to their stations and their communities. For NFCB's part, we periscoped our member meeting. We periscoped in Facebook Live a number of the makers sessions and our keynotes made those available on YouTube and tried to make them very shareable for folks who couldn't make those conferences and also to lead by example to show people that it is not that difficult to do these things at this time whereas it might have been a year or two ago much more difficult now it's much more accessible and you too can do it with just a smartphone and a computer and an account and make this stuff much friendlier and much more accessible to a wider audience. And we did that with this conference and we try to show community radio stations that they can do it too. You know, that's a discussion we've been having a lot uh, on, here on the podcast at Radio Survivors about yeah, I've heard a bunch of them. About being multi-platform. So it's great to hear uh, that not only are you encouraging people to use these tools and teaching them, but walking the walk, right? It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to do it. And in fact, just on last week's, on, on last week's episode, uh, which, you, which you may or may not have heard yet, you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, sometimes it's, I think people get in their own way. I'm certainly one of those people. Uh, who who overthink it right and and are have to plan too much and and because you really you want to be good and, and you want people to enjoy it and and really I think part of the lesson I keep learning myself is the some of these tools they're a little bit about spontaneity right in the same way that great live radio is about spontaneity um, and are you were you, were you finding uh, that people coming to your uh, workshops were embracing that aspect or 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 were there some who do and could kind of show off to the others a little bit of that kind of uh, positive attitude one of the things that I taught when I did one of the workshops at our um, regional summits, did a workshop on social media, and similar to what you just said, I, exactly what I tell people, you want to think about these things as a station, you want to strategize about what you want to convey, the kind of voice you want to present, and what you hope to uh, share with the larger community but you also need to embrace the chaos to some extent. You have to understand that you have to be a little bit more spontaneous. You have to be a little bit more exciting in that way. You have to give people a little bit of an edge of danger to understand that this is live radio and it's kind of fun and it's kind of energetic. And sometimes we give you things you don't expect. A lot of people have gotten into the very chaotic part of it, still trying to feel out the, the voice part. And that's a big challenge for a lot of people to figure out how a station puts a coherent vision and strategy into social media. Because oftentimes so many of the community radio stations that NFCB deals with, and from the larger community radio ecosystem, the LPFM ecosystem, and even the public media ecosystem, 
to a smaller extent, are still trying to figure out how these tools most effectively work and how you can grow audience from them. And that's really a bigger challenge because it's great to have the Snapchat presence. It's fantastic to have an Instagram presence and, of course, Facebook and Twitter and the others. But really, how do you build your audience from there? How do you create something where that audience becomes a supporter becomes a donor, becomes a subscriber, and where do you go from there? And I think that's the big puzzle. NPR is still struggling that out right now. Many others are still trying to deal with that. And I think there's a really good sense that from what I got from the conference, a lot of people have a really good sense that this is where we need to be going and this is how we need to embrace that. But we also need to go a little bit deeper and say, how do we build membership from here? How do we enrich ourselves and make a station that is really sustainable and can weather the ups and downs that media inevitably deals with, especially now in this digital world where startups shut down and close, stations get sold, things happen where you may not other, you would think these organizations that are incredibly promising, I mean, for example, something like this, the, the social sharing website just recently announced a closure of its doors had a lot of buy-in from a lot of really big tech players mm -hmm. and ended up closing its doors. If that organization that managed to attract some funding and some attention had problems, ended up shutting down, community radio is really going to have to step it up and really have to get involved with its listeners and find a way to rise up beyond just what we would expect from community radio. Are there concerns? Did people express any fears that being too engaged on social media, putting too much effort into that would detract and siphon away not only energy from what goes on airs, but also perhaps even siphon away audience? To me, I think the biggest challenge that community radio is going to face, and I got a sense of that from uh, from stations that I ended up talking to is how do you develop a relationship which is in sync with your radio station? Social media, Snapchat, video, they give stations a real opportunity in some ways to recast themselves to go beyond just mm. what people hear on the air, but to give opportunities to new voices, give opportunities for people who aren't otherwise the usual faces and voices that you hear to connect with a new audience that may be very similar or more similar to that particular audience than what they normally hear on the air. And that's a really exciting chance to recast the station and create a brand new relationship. However, I think a lot of stations are also trying to figure out how we get our usual voices, the people that listeners know and love, to adopt this platform. One of my experiences at KPFT, and I got the sense that a lot of stations were dealing with this, is there are sometimes volunteers that frankly don't get it. They don't really, they just still think that's the quote unquote internet. Oh, yeah. And so they don't really understand that that's frankly a much bigger audience than radio sometimes. And I think Ken Friedman has reflected this uh, on many occasions that their audience is now there. 
and a lot of stations audiences is quickly growing there and we need to learn how to accept that that is a new reality for us and that is very 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 important and so i've oftentimes as a program director at a station struggle with getting our volunteers to understand that uh, it's not just the quote-unquote internet or the quote-unquote world wide web but it is a new delivery platform that is quickly superseding radio in some respects. And a lot of stations are really struggling with that and trying to get some new adoption. As generations begin to change in radio, more stations are seeing new programmers who get social, who understand that that's the way to go. And you're seeing pockets of veteran programmers in community radio who seem to understand the importance of that, but there's still going to be a little learning process and a learning curve. I'm incredibly optimistic. I believe that there are a lot of people who, while they may not get it right now, they're going to get it because, I mean, they know that their kids, their grandkids themselves are checking out what's happening with uh, political conventions, what's happening with music, what's happening with news, what's happening with culture online. And it, it takes some time to connect the dots for some people to understand that, oh, I'm there checking these things out. Hmm, maybe mm -hmm. my listeners are too. Yeah. It takes a little bit, but I'm confident that that will happen. And it, it is happening all over the country. It just takes a little bit of time. Everything is a learning process and there's always a curve with it. Sometimes that curve's a little bumpier and sometimes we fall off that curve as we're going down the hill. But I believe that we're going to all get there. It just takes a little bit of time. And do you have any great example, or not even a great example, do you have an example of, of a station or maybe even a programmer who you, who you know, either you, maybe you met it at the, uh, at the NFCB conference or that you've met otherwise, who, who seems to really be showing how uh, they can knit in uh, social media into what they do and, and again, bring in those uh, new audiences uh, or, or, uh, or somehow uh, help to raise up uh, fresh voices? I've seen some work by various stations, uh, stations like uh, KGNU, WORT is doing a very similar thing. We at KPFD have done this as well, trying to integrate regional podcasters into one's programming mix, either okay. as um, programs that are on the FM grid or just as podcasts. For people who have a romance with FM, they may not get that there's a big audience on uh, podcast, on digital, on on-demand streaming types of platforms. For those who've done it before, they recognize the breadth of listenership, the diversity of people who are out there listening, and they're very much interested in creating this new synthesis, this idea of doing a podcast which is going out to a brand new audience, people who don't normally otherwise listen to a station, but want that on-demand intimate experience that podcasting creates, but also crave the legitimacy, frankly, of an institution like a radio station. Yeah. Because you don't become, you're not just this podcaster who's out there on blogger.com with 300 other people, or you're, you, you're streaming your stuff via Libsyn or any of the other uh, streaming services or, or, media services 
out there, but you're also somebody who has that heft of a radio station. Now, there are a lot of public radio stations that have linked into this, uh, stations that I can think of off the top of my head, like KCRW, which have decided, hey, we're going to serve up a lot of our content via podcast and discover new audiences Public Radio Exchange, longtime partners of NFCB have done this with Radiotopia and, of course, with their PRX streaming service as well. The PRX Remix service have really grasped onto this and understand that there is incredible power with deciding that not only are we going to service radio and not only are we going to present content to radio, but we're also going to do something via podcast. And you're seeing a lot of community radio stations that are the lights going on for them and they understand that, hey, there's a lot of energy out there. There's a lot of excitement. People who are willing to engage brand new communities and are really willing to connect with us as radio because we have the FM licenses. And for a lot of people, that legitimacy still means something to them. And it's very helpful for them to have that foot in the door and they're willing to work with radio for that and also introduce their audiences to stations and i think that's only going to grow and it's something i'm hoping to help foster at nfcb those collaborations as you see with those stations and with other projects i know the association for independence and radio and others are also trying to build those relationships too and we'll see more of that in the coming years yes it's really Something a concept that I think we we've been talking about quite a bit at Radio Survivor is is that the station is a platform. Another way of looking at it is, is that it's a hub, and it's this place that your listeners, your your supporters go to. They go to on their radio. They go to on the website, uh, and they may go to on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, to not just receive your programming, but to find out what's up, to find out what's important, to find out, gee, what's another take? How how should I be looking at these things that are going on in my community and in my world? And when a station, I think, does that, that promotes a podcast, uh, welcomes in a podcaster from their community to, to associate their program, maybe even produce their program at the station, they, they brought in the audience, one, for the, the podcaster, but then they brought in the scope, I think. They brought in that scope of ideas and, 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 uh, and, and voices for their listeners, for their supporter, and ultimately for their community. And, and it's great to hear, hear that it's happening more and that the conversation is really happening because I think that, that if you look at uh, successful media organizations outside of radio right now, so especially, you know, I think traditional ones, we call old media ones, like the New York Times or the Atlantic Monthly. These yeah. are organizations that have very – uh, carefully, but also very savvily embraced their websites, embraced video, embraced other media forms, so that what they develop is this audience that doesn't just pick up a, a paper newspaper or doesn't just pick up a paper magazine, although they may still do that, but engages with them in any number of ways and thinks of the Atlantic as the place that they go to for a particular type of news and analysis, not only as something which they can get at the newsstand or get in their mailbox. You're really seeing a seismic shift in media right now, and stations have this moment before us to get people to think about us in a different way, get people to understand that stations go beyond just your terrestrial signal, but you are 
deliverers of content. You can help provide a perspective to help people understand our communities and our world in a much more rich way. Now, we at NFCB embrace this. I mean, we're very excited about understanding that our new partnerships and relationships with digital are very key to where community radio needs to go. We were just profiled in Current as an organization that is working toward greater diversity in public media as a whole. And I see that podcasting in particular and digital in particular is going to be an exciting new avenue. Pew Research has pointed out that more and more African-Americans, Latinos are embracing digital, embracing streaming. And as we see with podcasting, more and more podcasts are featuring more diverse voices. And I think that for stations, particularly those who are wanting to see greater diversity and may either not have it in the community or may not have the capacity to feature it in a much more robust way, Partners like NFCB, partners like podcasts who are doing this great work out there are going to help them take what they do to a deeper and more profound relationship with those communities and to present the diversity of their cities and the diversity of their communities. I know that we talk about wanting to grow community radio. We talk about wanting to diversify it. We talk about wanting to diversify public media as a whole and make it more presentable and make it more representative of what this country has become in terms of its diversity. And I'm really confident that NFCB can help lead the charge on that. I'm really confident there are community radio stations that want to see that, that want to see it happen right now. And they're going to get on that and want to see new relationships. And we're going to make this happen. I really believe that. That's great. So let's jump over to Low Power FM. Uh, there was a, a, I believe it was a, was it day long or half day long kind of uh, Low Power FM summit that also went along with this year's conference. And it was the, the first of its kind uh, uh, at, a, uh, at a full uh, nationwide NFCB event, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was. And it was a packed house. I mean, I got to sit in that room with a lot of LPFM stations that are frankly doing such inspirational work. They are leading ideas, they're leading conversations, and they're helping communities get a voice. I mean, and they're everywhere from the reservation to small neighborhoods in large cities, to rural communities, to big urban areas. I mean, they're doing such incredible work and it was very exciting to hear people's stories. Many of them are struggling with infrastructure. They're trying to figure out how we can make these stations happen and how we can deal with the FCC regulations and deal with the various issues that so many FAFM stations are struggling with. And FCB has been a partner with a lot of them. Many more are looking to join NFCB. We have LPFM member rates. So we have a lot of new stations that are joining because there a lot of them are just dealing with the day-to-day things and then the greater vision things, not just like how to train a volunteer and what should our basic policies be, but also how do we connect with our communities? How do we represent those? And that was a really common story that came up at the summit. How do we grow and how do we represent our community in a much better way? Many of them already do. They're doing such fantastic things, but all of us, I mean, and this is kind of the mark of great leadership at some of these LPFM stations or a lot of these LPFM stations. How do we do this better? And so many of them are really committed to that. And it was very exciting to see so many LPFM stations come to the NFCB conference and come to the summit and say, we want to work together. We want to create some new partnerships. We want to just 
exchange numbers and exchange some stories and figure out where do we go from here. Was there talk about resource and not necessarily resource of like, obviously money is a big one, but oftentimes at a station, especially a small station that is just getting off the ground, questions of increasing representation or improving that or improving ties to the community are questions of time and effort, right? And so you you often have a, a small core group of really dedicated volunteers who are, you know, usually serving under many roles, wearing many hats. Often, you know, the person who might be, you know, keeping the transmitter going is also, you know, cleaning the toilets, right? And also uh, printing out, you know, fresh playlist forms or something, right? Everyone's kind of doing a lot of things. Was there any discussion about how stations can can knit in and fit in a lot of these kind of core mission-driven initiatives within the, 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 the core activities that are necessary just to keep the darn station on air? It's so funny that you mentioned that. I have a, a story from, I mean, I work at a, a large urban station, I guess you can call it, but we have a very small staff. So in addition to what I have done at KPFT in Houston, uh, I have to do the program director vision types of things. I've had to do that, but I've also had to do things like bail out the toilets and chase out the baby opossums and things of that nature. So I can feel that pain and I've had that experience on many, many occasions. And so I got a chance to relate to a lot of the stories of LPFM stations who are having to do exactly that. You have to deal with your volunteers and deal with your programming, but you also to make sure that the, the rabbit is out of the building and not scaring people. So that happens sometimes. And a lot of the stations are dealing with that, but they're also trying to get a grasp of how you vision the station going beyond that. And so um, there's still a lot of that that conversation that's happening, at least in my experience at the conference and at the summit, a lot of people who are trying to figure out how we make sure that we deal with all, for example, the FCC issues and making sure everybody is in compliance, things are documented, records are kept, things are filed appropriately, and making sure that the very, very tiny staff, if those stations are privileged enough to have a staff or have anybody paid to do these things, making sure those staff and volunteers work together to make sure the basics are done. But also, stations are also getting a real sense that we want to go a little bit more into how we serve our communities. And we want to represent not just a core of people that really believe in the station, although those people are really wonderful. Those are your MVPs to keep the station on the air. But how do we represent the Native American communities? How do we ensure that working class people in these neighborhoods also have a voice? How do we present them in programming, but also represent them in a positive way and represent the overall schedule in a way that's sustainable because they don't want to replicate the mistakes that some other stations have done uh, with programming schedules. And so they're also trying to talk through that. What is remarkable to me about so many of the folks who are active on LPFM, and there's so many fantastic folks, I wish I could name them all, but it's so great that many of them have taken a lot of lessons from groups like NFCB. They've dialogued with a lot of different people, and they're thinking about these things. It is really very positive. When I became a program director at a large station, I didn't have very much. I had to kind of figure out things as I went along. These folks were much smarter than I was at the time because they 
they said, we're going to take the step back and we're going to talk to a lot of different people. We're going to deal with the issues now and try to think about, put them on a big whiteboard and think about how we serve our communities, how we think about our schedule, how do we think about volunteer training and try to plan out a little bit ahead. And while we're doing our engineering plans, while we're submitting our filings, while we're doing these things, we're going to start having these conversations early. And many of those stations are very, very smart about it. Others didn't get the opportunity to do that. And so they're trying to hash that out right now. I'm hopeful for them because many of them are so young. They don't have the legacy of stations that have been doing this for 30 years or 20 years when it becomes much more challenging to figure out the process because then you've got a lot of people that are kind of dug in and have kind of have staked their claim, so to speak. Um, there are a lot of people that have a lot of new and excited energy and they want to do things in the right way. And so they're thinking about these things right now and LPFM or NFCB has such a, a wonderful landscape to do some amazing things. And I'm so excited about it personally. It's been my hope that Low Power FM would be the site of innovation in community radio, new approaches, new thinking, and that stations would not feel themselves beholden to models that are 40 and 50 years old. And that's not me saying that those models are necessarily wrong or that they have had bad results. But in any station that is 40 or 50 years old, its model is a matter of history. It's, it's a matter of something that was devised 40 to 50 years old and has morphed and evolved over the course of 40, 40 or 50 years old with specific histories, right? Because of specific people, because of specific events, because of specific things that have happened in the world, uh, not just at that station. And replicating something or seeing that as the only way to do community radio can often anchor you to – sort of struggles that might otherwise be resolved or you might not or fights that you never have to fight, you know, just because one station had to or continues to fight about something doesn't mean your station has to. And so I'm glad to hear that there are stations embracing that. And it sounds to me what you're saying is that the advice for, for low power FM stations, especially because you're, you're, you're building what you're going to be right now, right? Uh, even if you're even if your station's on the air, if you're a new station for the 2013 window, you haven't been on the air very long. Uh, is it? It's time. Take this opportunity to sit down and really think hard and write down what you want to be. Is is that kind of what you're saying? Those who are listening to the podcast as we uh, switch over can certainly picture me raising my hands up and saying amen because I think you're absolutely right. And I've had this conversation with stations as well, and NSCB embraces this too, which is this idea that while there are a lot of great stations that certainly have been doing things for many years, one of the truths is that, as you point out, the world has changed around us and models are changing very quickly. Business is changing. Government is changing. Everything around us is changing. So we as media organizations absolutely need to be thinking about how we're structured and are we still structured to innovate? Are we still structured to do things on the fly? Can we respond effectively in the event of an emergency or the event of the world changing around us? And in some cases for legacy organizations, the answer is frankly no. And so 
the excitement for me about female PFM is that so many of them have been raised around this idea that we can innovate and we can be responsive to some extent informed by a startup culture, which says we don't have to wait around for this. We're going to act and move very rapidly and we're going to respond as quickly as we can because we need to and because our communities demand it. And that's a very happy thing for me about LPFM. And I think that's why NFCB embraces LPFM so much because we're responsive in that way in many ways too. Sally and I and the team at NFCB are fantastic board. We are all ready to respond around the issues in media and how we change so quickly on a moment's notice. And so what kind of help can the NFCB offer a low-power FM station um, that, is, that is joining up as, as an LPFM member of the, of the NFCB? Well, NFCB offers a number of different benefits from our website, which provides a lot of basic infrastructure for stations, how to uh, guides on how to be in legal compliance, how to do underwriting if your station decides it wants to do underwriting, how to manage your volunteers sample documents to help you do the work that you do well, a group buys if you need to cover insurance, if you need to get streaming, if you need to do the things that will help your station stay alive and also stay in the legal warm waters. I think that's going to be something that is very important for somebody who wants to potentially be a member also, there's just things like our listserv in which members get a chance to share stories and participate and ask questions of peers uh, about anything that may be going on with the station. Just a few days ago on our listserv, we had somebody who asked about um, a question about an underwriter or how to deal with a technical problem with an antenna or automation systems and software and what people are working with and what it, where do they go for problems. Over these next few months in my new position as membership program director with NFCB, we're also going to be rolling out a lot of new services, everything from revenue generation ideas to year-end giving. We're also going to try to shoot to help stations develop new streams so that they can support themselves. One of the big challenges that community radio as a whole is facing is just the financial crunch. We are sensitive to that and respect that. And one of our charges is to help stations make themselves a lot more sustainable. And LPFMs and all stations that are part of the NFCB will have access to all of those tools and opportunities so that they can be hopefully uh, enriched in a better way through membership to NFCB. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Ernesto. And uh, congratulations on your new role with the NFCB. And I hope that means maybe you and I, uh, and, and, and along with Eric and Jennifer, we can all talk more often here on the show. You got it. Once again, that was Ernesto Aguilar. He is the outgoing program director at Pacifica's community station in Houston, Texas, KPFT. And he is soon joining the National Federation of Community Broadcasters to serve in the role of membership program director. Coming up in just a moment, Jennifer Waits will take us on a tour of two stations in the Washington 
D.C. area. Before then, though, I just want to remind you that you can always find out what's going on in the world of radio at radiosurvivor.com, where we report on stories of import. And, of course, you will find uh, Jennifer's station tours illustrated with great photos and lots more details than we can ever fit into the show. Go to radiosurvivor.com. If you have any comments about anything we talk about in the program, we'd love to hear them. We love hearing from listeners. Drop us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Or uh, you can tweet us at Radio Survivor, or you can leave us a note at our Facebook page, which is also Radio Survivor. We're easy to find. We're easy to contact. So go ahead and uh, do reach out. And, of course, if you can spare anything to help us in this endeavor, a non-commercial endeavor uh, where it's mostly volunteer uh, labor. In fact, it's all volunteer labor that puts the podcast together and keeps the website going. So anything you can contribute to help us in this effort and maybe to grow what we do is greatly appreciated. We'd love to turn this into a radio show that is free to air for non-commercial stations of all kinds, community, college, low-power FM. And we just need that extra time every week to, to put in that extra editing and extra planning time uh, that we just don't have as volunteers. So anything you could do to help us in that effort would be greatly appreciated. Learn more by going to radiosurvivor.com slash support. So up next now, we'll talk with Jennifer Waits with her radio station tours. Hi, Jennifer. So uh, you were on like sort of a massive East Coast tour earlier this year. And back in February, you had the opportunity to visit two new low power FM community radio stations, both in the in the Washington, D.C. area. And as you were telling me, uh, as we're getting set up for this, that that there's sort of an aspect of low power FM that you thought was really came through that was really uh, easy for you to identify in the course of uh, talking to the folks behind these two stations. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really feeling the sense of community from the low power FM movement. I feel like people have been talking to each other and, you know, forming groups online and collaborating and, and something that really speaks to that is on I don't know. I think in our Radio Survivor newsletter, we may have asked for suggestions on places that I should visit when I'm touring radio stations. And I got an email back in December, and the subject header was, Next Field Trip Suggestion, W-E-R-A-L-P, Arlington, Virginia. And in the email, Andy Rosenberg wrote, One of the newest LPFM community radio stations in the country launched last Sunday, December 6th. W-E-R-A dot F-M. Check out pictures in our internet stream on our Facebook page. You can score double on this trip by hopping on the Metro and visiting W-O-W-D Tacoma Radio, Tacoma Park, Maryland. They won't be on the air till next year sometime, but station guru Marika and her posse will show you the construction process and regale you with what's to come. Wow. <laughs> and then he says, let us... And then he says, let us know when to expect you. <laughs> How could you resist that? <laughs> I know. It was really welcoming. So Andy Rosenberg is on the board of WERALP. And and actually, so this email came in, and he didn't know that I already had plans to be in the area in February. So it was kind of the perfect perfect timing on his part. So I immediately responded to him and Marika and set up visits to see two stations, two new low power FM stations in the DC area. 
this is like a great moment, really. Uh, it's a great moment in community radio, and it is completely the result of this uh, last window, application window, which opened up back in, in 2013 because it was the first time that stations in a large metroplex like the Washington, D.C. area would even have the opportunity to get a low-power FM license. And here we have two new community stations, one on the air, one going on the air within the Metroplex. And there, uh, Arlington is down on, on the south side. It's in Virginia. So, And then uh, Tacoma Park is on the north side in Maryland. So they don't they can't serve the same community in that way, right? They're, they're, you know, they could online if they're online, but they can't with their signals. Uh, so now you have the opportunity to have these more hyper-local stations in addition to uh, WPFK, which is the Pacifica-owned uh, community radio station that operates in D.C. as well. You see this amazing growth, but how fantastic is it that – uh, that Andy at, at WERA said, hey, uh, you need to talk to the folks in Tacoma Park. I mean, how often does it happen to you when, when you start making these plans for your uh, for your radio tours? Not that often. Well, yeah, not that often in college radio, for sure. Um, when I was heading out to Denver, I contacted Gavin Dahl, who lives in Colorado, and he definitely gave me a whole list of stations to visit. Right. So, you know, he's part of the community radio scene there. He's part um, of the community radio scene nationally. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm sure he, I'm, you know, so he's kind of well hooked up. So he's kind of, he's kind of an exception, although a fantastic exception to have working in community radio. <laughs> I know. Um, so yeah, it, it is pretty unusual, but, but you know, you, we on Radio Survivor, we've been following this whole growth of LPFM, so it's pretty exciting for me to get out into the field and actually see some of these stations in action. And um, there's so much passion behind all of them, so it was a great opportunity on one trip to see two new stations in different stages of development. So WERA LP had been on the air for two months, so they were already up and running, but didn't have a full schedule yet. And then Tacoma Radio um, didn't have a studio yet, so I actually met up with the founder, Marika Partridge, in her, in her house, and we sat around her kitchen table talking about the station. Um, and then she walked me over to the studio space that, at the time, in February, um, didn't have any radio equipment in it, but it actually had some artist, some pieces done by artists of... Uh, sort of like a, a paper and cardboard radio board and radio equipment. Um, so it was more like an art piece that kind of looked like radio station equipment, mm. which was really quaint and cool. And over at uh, WERA in Arlington, Virginia, um, you mentioned that they are part of a community center or, or a media center. Yeah, they're part of a media center. Um, so it's, you know, originally it was a, you know, like public access cable. Um, okay. So they're part of um, Arlington Independent Media. Um, so when you go to their space, you have, actually when we were there, they were filming, uh, there was a group filming a sci-fi television show in one room. Hmm. Uh, and then you had people training um, to get on the air at the radio station in another room and classroom space, studio space. So, so you become a member and then you have access to equipment and studios. Um, so it's a whole, 
thriving media center that's been up and running for quite a while uh, versus the station in Tacoma Park, which is brand new, starting from scratch. And did you learn anything about how the TV side, and I guess it's a public access TV channel on local cable, I'm presuming, and and how that's interacting, if at all, with with the radio side or, or how they're making that relationship work out? No, I didn't really hear about that specific connection. Um, so I don't know if there are going to be, if there's going to be programming that's crossing over from one station to the other. I'm not sure about that. Um, I believe it, it sounds like people have been working on audio projects there even before there was a radio station. Hmm. So certainly there would be crossover with member activities. Um, but yeah, I don't specifically know if any of the TV content is on the radio. TV on the radio, a recurring theme that we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> or radio on the TV in some cases, yeah. like, like the Channel 6 stations. Um, you know, a lot of uh, low-power FM stations uh, went to local public access TV stations in this last round. They're, it's a really growing contingent, and I, I think one of the advantages of that arrangement is that often the public access TV stations, one, already have infrastructure, right? They already have studios. They already have, uh, you know, accounting and staff and things like this. The other part that people don't often think of is they have funding because public access TV stations uh, receive at least part of their funding from the local TV cable franchise. And it's usually written into the franchise, which is a contract uh, between whatever local municipality is in charge there and the, and the local uh, cable television uh, provider. So whether it be a company like Cablevision or Comcast or Time Warner Cable, um, often there is a fee that, that is paid somewhere in that process that goes to help fund uh, the public access station. So they often have that sort of ready bedrock, even though uh, most of the time my understanding is they still need to raise additional funds for the radio and, and often have to raise additional funds to, you know, to cover all their operations. But there's a certain kind of uh, foundation that they stand on that often uh, helps them get on the air or get on the air more quickly. Oh, yeah. And and we'll see that in future episodes um, because this isn't the only station that I visited that was part of a um, media, public access media center. So it, it's it's been beneficial. And I've heard that at other stations as well, that these are already people who are skilled in fundraising, already have just the overall structure of how things should run. So I, I think it's really helpful. And they have of course, experience in being public access, right? They have, they have experience in inviting people in from the general public to learn media production and present it uh, on the air one way or another, you know, and that, which is, which is part of this process that I think uh, sometimes we, we, it's so obvious that we forget about the fact that part of this process of community radio is uh, folks from all backgrounds, learning how to make radio or learning how to make media in some way, shape, or form, right? That that's that's the sort of fundamental uh, assumption behind community media most of the time is that people walk in the door without having to have been to broadcast school or have had a job at a broadcast station, that they can walk in completely without any experience, only with an idea or maybe just the motivation to to want to be involved. Yeah, tr- I mean, training is a huge part of it. And at, at WERA LP, they told me that they had trained around 100 people, wow. radio, uh, 
they had done radio training with a hundred people between December and February. Alone. Wow. That's, and <laughs> that's really a lot of people in such a short amount of time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much interest in community radio. Um, they had had, I think more than 80 show proposals that have been submitted. You know, that this is interesting to me that it seems a lot of stations I've heard about or even talked to who are going on the air have done this sort of show solicitation process way in advance of actually turning on the transmitter or even necessarily having a studio. Um, and I mean, I guess it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I haven't been privy to so many stations uh, starting up, but in many cases, it seems as though uh, in the past, for all sorts of reasons, uh, the sort of startup of getting people, recruiting people is is a little slower or happens uh, closer to when the station is actually on the air. Um, and it seems like a fairly successful uh, approach if you're, if you're able to take care of the necessary sort of training and uh, and such and 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 I think one of the concerns I, maybe I would have had in the past would have been whether the proposals would be any good. <laughs> if that makes any sense, you know, whether people would really grok and understand what community radio was about. But you know, I'm probably coming into this with a mindset that's already twenty some years old and maybe uh, is completely outmoded now. Maybe the folks who hear about something like uh, like Tacoma Radio are are just so they get it you know, or just ready to jump in. Yeah. And I mean, there are a few things going on, um, you know, at both stations. So Marika Partridge, the founder at Tacoma radio, um, she has an extensive radio background, um, including 15 years at NPR, um, which is actually where she met Andy Rosenberg hmm. of, um, the station in Arlington. So, so you have people from, with, you know, public radio backgrounds, with community radio backgrounds and college radio backgrounds and probably commercial radio backgrounds um, who are already at these two LPFMs in the D.C. area. And there are probably people in the community who have radio backgrounds, people connected with um, local music scenes. So, so it sounds like, you know, they have personal connections already with people who probably have radio skills or who have passions that seem to fit yeah. uh, quite nicely with community radio stations. So Tacoma Park is a really, really interesting town that has a very engaged population and also a very diverse population. Lots of different languages are spoken there. Um, so Marika was, was sure that the station had so much potential in attracting a diverse audience of listeners, but also a diverse um, station uh, volunteer staff, people with a lot of different skills and interests. You know, that that's an uh, interesting point. Um, my uh, grandparents lived in Tacoma Park from the 1950s through to the 1990s, and they still live in the D.C. area. Um and indeed, that's what, you know, impressed upon me when I would visit them as a kid all the way up in, until the 1990s is is that that sort of diversity. And yet when we sort of think about community radio and when, I think when you ask people who work in community radio, you know, about what are some of the defining features of of their stations or about community radio in general, diversity is always 
uh, is always something they say. And I think it's true of college radio as well, right? And especially because the alternative is typically uh, single format stations, right? It's, it's country or it's classic rock or it's, you know, some version of pop music or it's talk or it's sports, right? They're, they're, you know, and, and the sort of eclecticism and diversity of community radio tends to stand out um, by comparison. But I, you know, uh, I think you had a chance to have a conversation uh, with Marika about that. And, and I'd like us to take a listen to that tape. Yeah, I majored in geography and Canadian studies. I was in Vermont and I loved Canada. And I thought Canada had kind of a cooler model of immigration and like integration than we did. Canadian studies was really interesting. And I like the way that what Canada calls its its model, we call ourselves a melting pot. Mm -hmm. They call themselves a mosaic, which is really like what I don't want my radio station to be. Is a melting pot. Right. Forget about it. Yeah. It's not homogenization. It's a mosaic. We want to see the different shapes and colors and uh, just differentiating ourselves. Not We're not trying to be the same. And we have such a diverse community here. Like missives to parents from the middle school and high school... They're translated into like over, okay, easily over 70 languages. Really? Yes. Really? Wow. So I want to have language, Amharic, Arabic, you know, all, all the main languages here, many Asian languages. We mm-hmm. just need to have a lot of languages on the radio. Yeah. And that was Marika Partridge, uh, who is the founder of Tacoma Radio, W-O-W-D in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Uh, joining Jennifer in that conversation was also Laura Schnicker, who is at the University of Maryland and, and was meeting Marika for the first time, correct? Yeah. So, so Laura lives nearby. Um, and Laura is also my, my co-chair on the College Community and Educational Radio Caucus um, as part of the Radio Preservation Task Force. Um, and she's a DJ at College Radio Station WMUC as well. So she's an archivist and a college radio DJ. And and I like to bring people along with me on tours, kind of like-minded people. So I invited Laura along, and and it was great. Um, and she actually ended up asking a lot of questions. Um, we were all eating at the time, too, so it was helpful to have somebody else asking questions <laughs> so I could take notes. Um, and then after the visit, Laura and Marika ended up connecting and... People from Marika Station came and visited WMUC, and even during our visit, they talked about maybe doing trainings together and collaborating. Wow. So all of that just makes me really happy to help make these connections. Well, there was something which Marika said I really liked, and it was her uh, talking about she wants the station to be a mosaic instead of a melting pot. Right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and doing and and talking about that in in respect to the fact that Tacoma Park is a very diverse community and diverse in in in, in certainly in terms of of people where they are from internationally, therefore, in in, in terms of language spoken, uh, along with diverse in other ways. Right. And and, and I think, you know, um, that is something which, as we said in the setup there, that community radio tends to reflect and 
I, I think it's an important thing to for those of us who are in, enthusiastic about community radio to to sort of always kind of remind ourselves about a little bit. Because I think for myself sometimes um, I can become blasé about it because every community radio station is diverse, right? Because we're in opposition to these stations that are definitively not. And diversity is a term that means a lot of things to a lot of people, right? Sometimes it means diversity of, of, of sort of ethnic origin or skin color or uh, gender or sexual orientation. It can mean all of these things, although in community radio it tends to mean all of these things rather than just one one dimension. But it's so oh, yeah, important. And it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and it, well, and it can be music and talk, so having a diversity of types of programs. Right. There's so many different ways that you can slice it. And some of what she was talking about is diversity in language, even because it's a community where so many languages are spoken. So and not heard was, on the radio, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the important aspect here, and it sort of it it shows you. I mean, it's important to reflect on that root of community radio is that it comes from a place where it was starkly realized that you know even on an FM dial with say twenty five stations it actually reflects a very narrow set of interests of, of cultural preference, uh, often political point of view, never mind linguistic and, and, and sort of historical cultural background, right. That are just not there that, that don't, that are, that, that really don't reflect well in the difference between a, a, an urban station and a classic rock station. And, and while many stations, commercial stations do work to kind of broaden their inclusion, right? So I don't want to, this is not a wholesale condemnation of, of, of commercial radio, uh, which, which in many communities has come pretty far, especially in including people from the LGBTQ community, um, you know, and, and working hard to, to, to expand that diversity. It's still very narrow casted <laughs> by comparison and community radio while any given show might be sort of narrow casted is as a station really broadcasted, right? It's trying to hit so many people in it. And when you think about how many people are still sort of left out of the rest of the dial or what facets of people, right? I mean, just because uh, you might be from uh, the Caribbean doesn't mean that you don't like urban or classic rock music, right? That may actually reflect a part of your personality or, or what you like, but it also misses a bunch of aspects of of who you are and and the the community that you may be in and around the sub communities or or the smaller communities really uh, in and around, and that's what community radio really tries to hit. And that's the mosaic. And I think that uh, Marika really got at that point uh, really well. Yeah, it's a it's a great idea, you know, and that she talks about she doesn't want things to be homogenous. Like she thinks of a melting pot as being homogenous and a mosaic is more actually is more diverse <laughs> than a melting pot. So, yeah, I like I like the way she described that a lot. I think the challenge for every low power FM station, never mind community station, is to is how it will end up trying to provide that level of reflection and representation, right? Like compared to the actual community it broadcasts to. And and one of the great advantages of low power FM is is its its geographic uh, smallness, right? That 
it's more likely you're going to have a good approximation of of, of the of who is in that local community that you actually broadcast to. So, right, at, at Tacoma Radio or at WERA, they don't need to worry about all of D.C. Metro. They need to worry about Tacoma Park or Arlington, respectively. Um, right. But the challenge is sometimes, I think, that uh, that you – is to actually still develop that picture, right? It's easy for any one of us, I think, to, to have sort of a proximity vi- uh, bias, right? Uh, we know – our community or people that we know, right, which which may not be everyone who lives in and around you, you know, and and how do you make sure that uh, you're actually reaching out beyond just maybe your own social network? So though it sounds as though uh, the folks at WERA and at uh, Tacoma Radio already have some already know a lot of people already well embedded and and have a great place to start. But I think it's always a question. the The parallel question. Or in some ways, the opposite question is: How do you make this uh, a listening experience that is sustainable? Right, that will draw in enough listeners uh, that you're able to cover your operations. Right, you know, uh, broadcasting in multiple languages is great for serving people of a variety who who speak a lot of languages. Never mind, also exposing. people to new languages, but it's also uh, outside the general experience of most radio listeners, right? It, it can be jarring. It can be and, – and people often make the assumption if they hear, say, Spanish on a station for the first time, they make the assumption it's a Spanish-language station and may never try back if they don't speak Spanish. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the challenge. Um, and when I visited, Marika was already starting to think about all of that as she was thinking about how to map out the schedule and also thinking about it in the context of the radio of the local radio dial there. So what shows are on other stations at the same time and what would be a good show to go up against a show on another station of a particular music genre, for Mm -hmm. example. So it's definitely something that, both stations were thinking very seriously about, and I'm sure they're continuing to tweak the schedule as, you know, they're both still really young stations. So all of this is a work in progress. Yeah. And, and as out low power FMs, they don't need to become, you know, our, you know, uh, Nielsen rated in, in their towns. What they need to be able to do is to demonstrate a level of service that people are willing to support. You know, I think that, uh, you know, setting the bar at sustainability is is probably the first step. Uh, and, and you know, but that's why a lot of community stations have moved to narrowing their programming in some cases because they actually find that – Sometimes the the more eclectic approach is gets more difficult to, to sustain in in some communities, um, and it doesn't mean that it's unsustainable so much as that you know there are so many things changing about the media landscape in our economy that your old method of fundraising or your old methods of of listen, of developing a listenership uh, don't work as well as they do in a new environment. You know, so it may not be the fault of of an eclectic schedule so much as that. Uh, it requires new uh, approaches, new ways of thinking to to attracting people to listening to an eclectic schedule, if that makes any sense. Yet for all of this sort of talk of eclecticism and, and diversity, you know, there's still the coming together, right? It's all an 
one station or it's all in a couple of stations and it's and and with luck it's 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 the moment of that as you put it collaboration it's community it's crossover and it seems to me that uh, one of the times that this shows itself so early right is when stations put themselves on the air right it's this great time of celebration um and the culmination of lots and lots of hard work and so uh, you were able to talk with someone at, at WERA about when they went on the air, that moment. Yeah, Executive Director Paul LaValle, he actually uh, gave me a ride to the airport after my visit because I cram in all my visits um, up till the last minute. And so as we were driving in the car to the airport, we were listening to the station and he described to me what it was like on the day of the launch and it was pretty epic and I felt like I was there. So was it a, was it a thrill to finally hear the station on FM? <laughs> it was. Um, the night of the launch, we launched at 6 p.m. on December the 6th and um, we had a huge party. There were hundreds of people and it's crowded into that facility and I was standing at the podium and uh, Jackie, who works for me, was in the uh, radio studio, and she was going to, when we counted down, and when we got to one zero, then she was going to say, you're listening to WERA uh, 96.7 Arlington for the first time, and then play This Land is Your Land, which we had recorded earlier in a sing-along in the studio. So... I'm at the podium, there's all those hundreds of people crowded into the uh, lobby there, and we count it down, five, four, three, two, one, zero, and then it was so loud in there, all the people, I couldn't hear whether or not it actually went on, <laughs> and there was this moment of horrible panic of, oh my god, what if we did all this and it didn't work, you know, because how would I know, but it worked. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, we went on the air live, and we've been on ever since. What time of day? 6 p.m. So that was Paul LaValle talking about the very first day of WERALP. And so it was interesting because just a few weeks ago, Tacoma Radio just launched in June 2016. So I feel like... I've sort of been able to be on the sidelines in a way of these two launches. And it was great to meet people from both stations who have such a passion for low power FM and community radio. I mean, it's a momentous occasion. It is not every day in any community that a new radio station goes on the air at all, period. Never mind a new community radio station. So um, it's fantastic to celebrate it every time it does. And I do think it's a moment which I hope the folks at both of these stations will remember. I hope it's part of station lore. I remember uh, every so often when I was volunteering at WEFT in uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, 
a community station. Uh, every so often, you know, someone would dig out the tape of, of WEF going on the air, right? In, in 1981, some work was being done to make sure someone could always find that piece of tape so that we could, you know, relive that moment and be reminded of, of the celebration. Cause you know, I think after someone's been at, after a station's been around for 20, 30, 40 years, it's it, it, like with anything, it's easy to start to take it for granted and focus on some of the problems at the expense of all the wonderful things about it. And it's a great way to remind yourself of, of, of what joy there was in, in first lighting up that transmitter. And also it's an important part of keeping track of your station's history. You know, you know how passionate I am about radio history mm-hmm. and, and I think stations should keep track of their history from the very beginning. Like that's the best time to write down your origin stories is immediately after your station has launched. So, so hopefully um, this is a sign that that is taking place at both stations. And you have written your uh, reports, your station tours are up at the radio survivor website. Uh, They'll be in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And uh, so what you're saying is that the folks at WERA and the folks at uh, Tacoma Radio should print these out and make sure it's in in a binder somewhere (laughs) in case, uh, you know, there is uh, the internet goes kablooey, their radio station still on the air, and they will have your record of of that. And that's important. And they should have the, and I'm sure they've been covered in the local press uh, and they should have those clippings too. It all, it all adds up to the larger story, doesn't it? It's true. Yeah. Everybody should hang on to press accounts of their station and I'm happy to be part of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is real. Well, thank you uh, this week for sharing two uh, tours. We, we normally, and I'm not sure we've ever done two tours in one show. It requires a little more effort and we have to kind of uh, get all of our facts straight. But I think in this case, it really worked out because of how these two stations really are complementing each other, it looks like, in the Washington, D.C. area, which has, you know, pretty much tripled the amount of community radio it has now on the dial in just in just a matter of like six months or so. It's pretty amazing, especially in a major metro area. You know, we've had people write to us saying that low power FMs aren't cropping up in big cities or big metro areas. And this is proof to the contrary. Oh, no. I mean, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, San Francisco, (laughs) Los Angeles. Those are, and that's just off the top of my head. And I, you know, I'm sure I'm missing. Uh, dozens and dozens of stations, and 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 we're even and and I'm even sort of selecting for low power FMs that I know to be trying to be community radio stations that aren't mostly relying on uh, pre-recorded programming or satellite programming or whose mission is a little different from typical community radio. So in addition to probably other low-power FMs in these metroplexes, I know there are there are uh, true community radio stations in all of those metroplexes. Yeah, so this is proof to that um, to that point, and you know there are still people out there who don't realize this is happening, which is hard to believe. But you and I are very uh, mired <laughs> we live in this it. world. <laughs> I know, but it it's pretty incredible because you know initially we really didn't think we'd have an opportunity to have low power FM in urban areas, and it's nice to see these stations getting on the air. Yes, so 
Um, if you live in the D.C. area, check out Tacoma Radio in Tacoma Park. Check out WERA in Arlington, Virginia. If they have uh, WERA, I believe, has an online uh, presence. So I'm pretty sure you can check them out. Listen online if you're not quite in their uh, listening area and um, support them. <laughs> and in your own community, if you live somewhere else and you have a community radio station or several, find a way. Find a way, please, to support them. We'd appreciate it. <laughs> and they both have online presences, so we have links in uh, – we'll have links in the show notes, actually. Absolutely. Check them out. Well, thanks again, Jennifer, and uh, a few more a few more miles on those shoes, huh? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. And once again, thank you to Jennifer Waits for joining us and sharing those great station tours. And thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your week to spend with us and to learn a little bit more about radio and get some great inspiration, great ideas, or at least a little bit of entertainment. We really appreciate it. And hey, don't forget about National Radio Day coming up on August 20th. Let's get ready for the celebrations. Um, If you're at a station, think about doing some special programming. Maybe you can do an event or just ask your DJs, ask your air staff all day long to mention National Radio Day. Uh, Tweet out selfies, put them on Instagram, do something fun on Snapchat. Maybe do a Facebook live event, do a Periscope live video event. Let's just uh, think of interesting, fun, creative ways to celebrate this great medium of radio. Go to nationalradioday.com. To learn more, of course, we're at radiosurvivor.com. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And hey, give us a rating on iTunes. Click some stars, if you will, if, the, if you use iTunes at all. That helps other people find the show. You can also do it on Stitcher. Um, and if there's another uh, platform, Google Play, uh, go ahead and do it there too, if that's what you use. Uh, that helps other people find the program, and we consider it a great gift. Until next time, keep enjoying the radio.